In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, at that broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tappan Zee, and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed, there lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Tarrytown. The name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country from inveterate, the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely avert to it, for sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, or rather lap of land, among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it, with just murmur enough to lull one to repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. I recollect that when a stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting, was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime when all nature is particularly quiet, and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat, whither I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. From the listless repose of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow and its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout the neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrik Hudson, Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country, and the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambols. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region, and seems to be the commander-in-chief of all the powers in the air, is the apparition of a figure on horseback, without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper, whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who was ever and anon seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of the night, as if one of the wings on the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to adjacent roads, and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain most of the authentic historians of those parts, who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this specter, allege that the body of the trooper having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow, like a midnight blast, is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the church before daybreak. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows. 
and the specter is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Life After Midnight, Strange History, Salem Style, on Owl Hallow's Eve. And you may have guessed by the reading that I just selected from Washington Irving's tale, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, first published in 1820, that I have taken a trip down to Terrytown, New York. So I am sitting here in Sleepy Hollow and have been going about my business, sort of exploring the area all day, which is sort of a lifelong dream of mine. And I'm back with you to share my experiences and share a little bit about what I've learned about the town of Sleepy Hollow. Something that I've been curious about since childhood is where this legend came from, where its origins are from, and what it means for not only the people living still in Terrytown today, but in our culture as a whole. I know many of you have probably read Sleepy Hollow either in school or on your own. Many of you have probably even gone to the town on Halloween to go to one of the many haunted attractions that you can see in Sleepy Hollow to this day. I know I did a few myself. Uh, My husband and I actually traveled to... Uh, the Old Dutch Church today and Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. We also uh, went to the Great Jack-O-Lantern Blaze, which is a little bit upriver from Sleepy Hollow and was amazing. And we ended the night by going to the Lyndhurst Mansion, which is the setting for the Dark Shadows movies. Um, But despite all of that, I'm sure that many of you uh, listening know that I live in Salem. Many of you have probably traveled to Salem for Halloween and for any sort of spooky uh, things you might do. But I have to tell you, after being in Sleepy Hollow, uh, there is something about this little sleepy riverside town that I definitely understand. And it seems to me that Halloween, or what you think of as Halloween, this time when the wheel is turning and the veil is growing thinner, not the thinnest, as many of my witch friends will remind me, but it is growing thinner, um, but it is certainly a night where the dead walk amongst us. Sleepy Hollow just has that. And I mean, I, when I was walking around Sleepy Hollow Cemetery today, I could definitely feel uh, that there were eyes on us. That's all I can say. There were other people in the cemetery. We were there just when they were about to close. Uh, But it definitely uh, is a definite source of inspiration. And, And so I wanted to take this time, since I knew that I was going to be here, to delve a little bit into the legend of Sleepy Hollow, into the history of the town, and sort of get at why this inspired Irving so much, as it still continues to inspire people today uh, to come here, especially during the autumn and during Halloween itself. So, that being said, welcome to another episode of Life After Midnight, and I have entitled this one, Heading Home to the Horseman's Hollow, uh, a Halloween in Sleepy Hollow. The area that will come to be known as Sleepy Hollow was first settled around 1609. Henry Hudson, as he sailed up the Great River of the Mountains, said that it is as pleasant a land as one can tread upon. Henry Hudson was looking for a northwest passage to India and his ship the Half Moon. The Hudson River and its tributary the Pontico, Pocantico, excuse me, drew early settle, settlers to Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow to farm, trade, and build homes. And it was here that Frederick Phillips built a mill, a residence, and a church and enjoyed great prosperity on his vast holdings that extended north from Spoutenduvel to the Croton River and east to the Bronx River. 
And it was from that that the villages of Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow eventually grew. Uh, the natives in the area were known to be a peaceful tribe of hunters, farmers, and fishermen, and that they basically raised maize, pumpkins, beans, and oyster caught oysters, caught sturgeon, other fish, and hunted game, and they exchanged and trade with the European settlers, which is how all of those narratives seem to go. Uh, the peaceful relations, of course, as we all know, were short-lived, uh, and Distrust and misunderstanding led to serious conflict and the eventual disappearance of the Westchester tribes from this area. So, like many of the areas that were settled, uh, Sleepy Hollow is no different in the fact that the native peoples of this region were actually pushed out. Um, it is still called the Westchester region today. In fact, there is a fire department actually right across the street from our hotel that uh, is called the Westchester Fire Department. So, it is still called that today. Uh, and it is in this place that Washington Irving would eventually get his uh, inspiration for the legend of Sleepy Hollow. So what is it about the legend of Sleepy Hollow that draws us in um, and what can we learn from it? So to answer this very question, I did recently reread the tale and sort of jot down some notes and things of that nature. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how that was published. It was actually published in 1820 by Washington Irving as a series in um, his first sort of release as a publisher. And it was the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon Gentleman. Um, so that actually made its literary debut in 18, uh, I'm sorry, um, that made its literary debut. And it contained the stories of Rip Van Winkle, which was published in 1819 or written in 1819, and The Legends of Sleepy Hollow, which was published slash written in 1820. Um, so it is these two stories that gained Washington Irving acclaim, and it's these stories that actually expanded his popularity into Europe. He's one of the first American authors to be widely recognized in Europe, and he encouraged other American authors such as Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Herman Melville, and Edgar Allan Poe. And so when he first was published, um, his literary debut was in 1802, as I said earlier, and it was a series of observational letters to the Morning Chronicle under the pseudonym John Oldstyle. Aaron Burr was actually a co-publisher of the Morning Chronicle, and he was so enamored by the writings of Jonathan Oldstyle that he actually sent copies and letters to his daughter, Theodosia. Another interesting tidbit about uh, Washington Irving nay, Jonathan Oldstyle, is he was actually discovered, too, by an author from Philadelphia named Charles Brockton Brown, who made a trip to New York to recruit him for a literary magazine he was editing in Philadelphia. So I will add a little bookmark there and tell you to stay tuned, because Charles Brockton Brown is the author of another book, Wheeland or the Transformation, that I will actually be discussing in my next episode. Uh, this is an episode uh, that I've been writing for months uh, because there is a lot involved in that and some early forays into spiritualism and phantasmagoria that are all involved in that and so I was actually pleased to find when I was doing my research about Washington Irving both on the drive here and yesterday um, that Charles Brockton Brown actually knew him and tried to recruit him to write for a literary magazine. Um, Charles Brockton Brown himself was actually raised in Manhattan uh, his mother and father are of Scottish and English descent. His mother is actually from Cornwall. And he, they settled in New York uh, 
and actually settled there a bit after we got the news that the revolution had ended. So they settled in Manhattan. They became well-known New York merchants, well, his father did, and several of his brothers. Um, so this is the life that uh, Washington Irving was raised in. He, he himself was actually named after George Washington, who was living in New York after his inauguration as president in 1789. Irving met him at the age of six, uh, and the president actually blessed him, which is depicted in a watercolor from 1854, printed by George Bernard Butler, Jr. Uh, while all of his family members became merchants, Irving himself pursued a writing career, and his brothers often became the financial support for that throughout his life. Uh, however, he was not the best student. Irving himself actually preferred adventure. He preferred drama. He thought school boring, and the, as early as the age of 14, he would sneak out of school every chance he got to go and attend the theater. Big mood. Uh, but in a yellow fever epidemic actually forced his family later on to send him upriver to Terrytown, New York, where he stayed with a friend named James Kirk Paulding. So it is there that he became familiar with the town now known as Sleepy Hollow. Uh, and it's where he drew a lot of his inspiration because he would remark later on in his letters and writings that he remembered hearing about the old Dutch settlers, uh, look, learning about the area, hearing all the different superstitions and ghost stories that came along with that culture, and it greatly inspired him uh, to write that. He also, uh, at many times, took trips through the Catskills and... That area, as we know, is actually the setting for Rip Van Winkle. So he got a lot of inspiration from this area, and eventually we know that he himself would settle here uh, and live here until he died. I actually visited his grave today in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, where you can still see his resting place today. Sleepy Hollow itself is a very interesting story. As we know, it's the story of Ichabod Crane. It is set in 1790 in Sleepy Hollow. And it is the story of a school teacher that has come from Connecticut to settle in this small town and be a teacher, um, which is pretty common for the time. Educators would usually uh, be sent out into country schools to better education out there in rural areas and to gain some experience, especially if they were new educators or budding educators, as Ichabod Crane is in the story of Sleepy Hollow. What's interesting about this, though, is what this all symbolizes, and I... It's really interesting to me how a lot of the echoes of the legend of Sleepy Hollow, when you look at it, have a lot of echoes in how different cultural things are portrayed today. In Sleepy Hollow, the major thing is the depiction of country people versus city people. So this is an ever-present theme in American literature, and that comparison of city dwellers to country dwellers is something that... We, um, we continue to see in the current, mainly in horror films. Uh, I know that The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is a very loose connection to modern horror films, but that is something that would be more apparent to many people in the modern sense, is that you will see this sort of backlash against the city dwellers invading a country space. And the Sleepy Hollow is no different uh, in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. So Ichabod obviously represents the intelligent, educated city dweller. He's genteel. He falls in love with Katrina Van Tassel, who is this country, wealthy girl who he sees as an aspiration for himself more than anything else. When we see that scene of Ichabod Crane looking with his big green eyes out onto the rolling hills of the farm and seeing the sheep and imagining himself with a family and children with Katrina Van Tassel, um, we very much see that she is an aspiration financially as well as for love. Um, 
His competition, however, we know is Brom, who is the well-liked, strong, skilled country man who's a wonderful horseback rider. He's a renowned hunter. He's someone everyone knows in the town. He's even had his own run-in with a headless horseman and survived to tell the tale. Uh, So this is sort of what Ichabod is up against. Which is interesting because this uh, doesn't only um, illustrate the city versus country dweller, it illustrates the ever-present ideal of masculinity being attached to skill and physical prowess, which is something that is always seen when country people are depicted by the literary greats of our time. So it's sort of telling that this is how those people, including Washington Irving, are actually viewing these country dwellers uh, more as an archetype for... Um, the ideal man and the ideal genteel simpler life Uh, so even when we hear people say you know those were simpler times which we know they weren't they never fucking were Uh, but obviously uh, that's a term that's used even now Uh, so it would seem that Washington Irving himself actually had a little bit of that sort of uh, stereotype in his own mind when he's writing the legend of Sleepy Hollow It actually also depicts something else that I find quite interesting is how educated people look to the country people. Because we do know that in Sleepy Hollow, when people are talking to Ichabod and they are seeing his gangling form and his awkwardness, uh, they, you know, look at him and say, oh, look at this city guy. He's absolutely oblivious to the world around him and how things really are. So that's where we see that sort of clash between that. It's also interesting to note that Washington Irving himself uh, had that very privileged lifestyle, right? He was raised in Manhattan. He's raised in a metropolitan area after the time of the revolution. He's growing up in this era where you have these larger-than-life figures like President George Washington. Uh, Everyone is sort of finding their place in this new world. His family is a bunch of wealthy merchants who are able to support his writing career. So you can sort of, in many of these early American authors, see their own life coming through in different ways. And for Irving, it's not only this inspiration with the supernatural that he gains in visiting Terrytown, but it is his own life that you very much see coming through in the figure of Ichabod Crane, which is really interesting. So, of course... This is Halloween. I've talked about Ichabod Crane. I've talked a little bit about American literature. But what you're really here to hear about is the Headless Horseman, of course. And when you visit Sleepy Hollow to this day, I mean, there is a gigantic 18-foot statue of the Headless Horseman chasing down Ichabod Crane, getting ready to throw his head at him as the end of the climax of that story. It is still right down the street from uh, the old Dutch church and the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. And right across the way is Phillipsburg Manor, which is this old mill and manor house that has been here since the incarnation of Sleepy Hollow, which is perhaps the inspiration for the mill and manor home of, you know, Baltus von Tassel. So, you know, you're seeing all of these different things around you, and it is very present uh, that that influence is still here. So what does the Headless Horseman symbolize and what is it that we have sort of attached ourselves to in our culture? For me, when I'm reading it, I think of a few things. Well, first of all, we know that the Headless Horseman is supposed to represent a German Hessian soldier that was felled in battle uh, and a cannonball took off his head. He was buried somewhere in Sleepy Hollow and this is something that all of the locals talk about. Uh, They even mention like other things that have happened in the town. I know that 
it is mentioned that, you know, the horseman is oftentimes seen near the tree where Andre was captured, uh, referring to Major John Andre, who was a co-conspirator with Benedict Arnold and was eventually captured in the town of Sleepy Hollow. And you can actually visit that spot today. There is actually a um, monument there um, erected in Terrytown that you can actually visit. So... All of these things are sort of circulating in this area, and, and all of the people are very aware of these different things going on, you know, like Major John Andre, like the Headless Horseman, like all of these ghost stories and things that you hear about. Um, so Captor's Monument is a spot that is even talked about before the monument is erected, of course, in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Now, for me, when I'm reading the book, the Headless Horseman represents a few things. Obviously, it, it represents an exotic strangeness. Uh, you're talking about someone who is, you know, an other to the people of Sleepy Hollow. He's a German Hessian soldier. He's someone who is depicted as, you know, brutal and had this, you know, great black steed and everything like that and was very intimidating on the battlefield. Uh, he's also somebody that depicts a very common theme in superstition, which is that of unfinished business, which is something that you will often hear about in any sort of American folk tales of hauntings. So this strangeness and superstition is always at the heart of how rural life is depicted during this time period. Although Ichabod Crane is not from a rural area, rather coming to Sleepy Hollow as that teacher, he is obsessed with the supernatural. And we know that when he sort of takes his turn, when everyone is telling ghost stories at that party he finally goes to, trying to woo Katrina and impress the Ventassels and everyone like that, um, he avidly talks about Cotton Mather's history of New England witchcraft. So there's another connection, too, is, you know, we're mentioning all of these old New England sort of things. So even when you're talking about somewhere like New York, that ever-present superstition and that ever-present history uh, regarding New England and witches and witchcraft trials is even still in that. So it's this time period where all of those traditions are inherently steeped in the life of Americans. Um, and in the 19th century, as we all know, especially with the witch trials, that is something, an era where we start re-exploring that history and everything like that. And so you'll see that reflected in many authors, not only Washington Irving, you'll see that reflected in Nathaniel Hawthorne's works with Young Goodman Brown, even with The House of Seven Gables, The Scarlet Letter, and going back to that Puritan um, sort of interest for many, many people in the 19th century. And so even in Sleepy Hollow, New York, we can't escape Salem. Huzzah. Uh, Ichabod also, in seeing the Headless Horseman, it's another sort of symbolism, which is that Ichabod clearly doesn't belong in the country, right? So he is going through the motions. He's trying to woo Katrina. He has that final chase down scene with the Headless Horseman where he sees this lurking, looming black figure that starts to follow in his steps. And of course, at the very climax of this story, we see the Headless Horseman throwing his head at Ichabod Crane. And we all know that the next morning, the townspeople go to look for him when the schoolboys show up at the school and Ichabod is nowhere to be found, only to find his tricorn hat and the horse that he was riding, gunpowder, with the saddle uh, detached. So it's assumed by many in the town, of course, adhering to the superstition that the Headless Horseman has come for Ichabod Crane. But 
It's also thought by many literary critics that this means that Ichabod was run out of town, that he has finally had to let go of his obsession with the supernatural and his obsession with superstition and leave the town of Sleepy Hollow because he is very clearly not welcomed even by the local lore that he seems so enamored by. So it is a very literal sense of reminding you know, us that when we come to a place and we are interacting with its history and we are interacting with its legends and lore, that may not always be a welcome place, essentially, or especially if you're going to make assumptions about that history and folklore. And in rereading this and sort of looking at it through that lens, it actually came to me that it reminds me of many people who I have encountered who will come into a space, especially Salem, having read just a little bit about that history and can sometimes, you know, get the locals sort of upset about that because they they are here because of this strange obsession with place and strange obsession with Salem, not only for its history, but as a part of their own identity, only to be rejected by many people who have been here uh, for a very long time, who've lived in Salem for a very long time and sort of have been building that themselves over many, many years. Uh, So this is something, you know, that's even reflected in the 19th century when we're writing about the 18th century. You know, Washington Irving obviously mostly lived and wrote in the 19th century, but he's writing about the 18th century. And so it sort of tells us that even then, the horseman represents something different to the people at that time in the sense that they have different values and different traditions but it's something that still rings true and it's much of its theming today with things that we encounter in our own culture. Uh, mainly, you know, that exotic strangeness, the push against between city dwellers and country dwellers, and that obsession with superstition that can sometimes border on voyeuristic. So in the case of Ichabod Crane, when the headless horseman chases him out of town, it's chasing away this voyeur of a culture that is not his. So it's chasing away, in a way, uh, his otherness to the people of Sleepy Hollow. So uh, let's talk about the town of Sleepy Hollow, because as you all know, this is something that has been depicted not only in Washington Irving's tale, but in that animated movie we all saw when we were kids and Tim Burton's film Sleepy Hollow with Christina Ricci and Johnny Depp. Uh, And it's something that sort of continues to be used even when you go to haunted hayrides in different places today. I know I have seen so many different headless horsemen in different places, whether it is Pennsylvania, in Massachusetts, or in New York, where it actually has its inception. The town of Sleepy Hollow was actually originally incorporated as North Terrytown. So it was sort of one of those situations where the locals have always called Sleepy Hollow Sleepy Hollow, but it was known as North Terrytown in the 19th century. It was not actually officially named Sleepy Hollow until 1996 when the town adopted that traditional name. Some of the sites that inspire Irving's story are still seen around here today, one of them being the Old Dutch Church. It was built in 1685 and organized as the Dutch Reformed Congregation in 1697. So it served as the congregation's home for about 150 years until a new building was built. But even then, it was retained for worship on summer Sundays and special holidays. And that tradition actually still continues today. The church will be open for special holidays and services Um, by that same congregation, which still exists today. 
Fast forwarding a little bit to the 20th century, uh, Sleepy Hollow is also known for another popular part of fiction, and that is at Lyndhurst Mansion, which I was also very lucky to visit. Uh, and that was used as a setting for the Dark Shadows movies. So the TV series, which is also very popular, was actually mostly filmed, Collingwood was mostly filmed from the outside in Newport, Rhode Island at Cary Mansion. Uh, but the movies themselves were filmed uh, with Lyndhurst being the backdrop for many of that, uh, many of those uh, scenes and things. So Lyndhurst itself is actually another very interesting building. And it has a lot of history. Um, Lindhurst was actually built for a New York politico named William Paulding Jr., who, uh, according to author J.W. Ocker in his book New York Compendium, A Guide to Macabre and Ghastly Sites, uh, so it was built for William Paulding Jr., who, among other public and military offices, served as a U.S. representative for New York and the mayor of New York City. The Gothic Revival is also eventually became the home of businessman George Merritt, who named the property after its linden trees. So that's where it gets the name, Lindenhurst. And eventually, it actually belonged to the railroad tycoon Jay Gould, who is known for being a very famous robber baron of that era. And so it is a 67-acre ground. Many of the outbuildings were actually used for Dark Shadows, uh, and that building still sits there today. They do historic tours. The program that we saw there was interesting. It's very fun for kids. It's called Jay Ghoul's Manor, and it's very much a sort of combination of puns and spookiness. It had beautiful settings, so it's a huge Gothic Revival mansion. It looks like a castle. Um, that was all decorated for Halloween, and the essential thing with their night programming is that you're there to meet the Ghoul family and hear their stories. Um, so, I mean, it was very, it was very down home. It was very uh, low budget production, but the actors definitely seemed into it, and um, they were trying very hard. And I think we just kind of had a sleeper crowd too. Now that I think about it, our crowd was kind of uh, boring. So I think um, the actors were trying their best with that, but we had just kind of a sleeper crowd. Uh, so you go through room to room, and it was just really great to be in there at night and see this mansion sort of decorated very spookily and sort of hear the cute little stories. But it's very much a parody of, like, the Adams Family and the Munsters and all these sort of strange families. Um, so I would love to go back for a day tour because I would actually like to learn a little bit more about the history of the home because it's actually beautiful. Uh, but that will have to be for another time. And so, without further ado, we've talked about some legends and lore that are well known, but we haven't talked about hauntings, because obviously I am here on Halloween, and that is probably some things that you want to hear. Uh, so I did actually dig up a few ghost stories, and they go back, uh, the furthest one back that I found was actually from 1916. Um, and there's an article from the New York Times that talks about it because they actually were able to interview this person. Um, in 1916, a little girl, six or seven, wandered into Sleepy Hollow Cemetery at night on a Halloween dare. She crept amongst the tombstones and mausoleum until she was stopped by an unsettling sound, and it was a woman crying softly and bitterly. The girl made her way toward the sound and arrived at the statue of a seated, seated woman. 
The weeping stopped when the girl climbed onto the statue's lap and reached up to touch the face. There were tears under the eyes. The little girl was the grandmother of a woman named Emily Storms Arminio, a 10th generation native of Sleepy Hollow who recalled hearing the tale often. Over the years, different generations of Sleepy Hollow residents, the people who Washington Irving described as subject to trances and visions, as we said before, uh, have created a ghostly mythology about this statue. So some people claim to have heard weeping or felt the tears on this sculpture, which actually gazes at the tomb of the Civil War general, Samuel Thomas. They call her the Bronze Lady, but she's also called the other legend of Sleepy Hollow. The New York Times article says that Anthony J. Marmo, a village native, recalled his experiences with the statue in the early 1970s. And he said, and quote, She was someone you learned about from the older kids, someone who knew the way would take you there. At one time, you could hardly find it. It was hidden by tall rhododendrons. Mr. Marmo recalled these bronze lady superstitions and said, If you knocked on the door of the general's tomb and looked through the keyhole, you would have a bad dream that night. Of course, that always worked. There was another one where if you slapped her in the face, sat in her lap, and spit in her eye, she would haunt you for the rest of her life. There was always one brave kid who did it. When we got older, we would be the ones bringing new kids up. One of us would hide behind the statue and come out screaming if a kid had the nerve to sit in her lap. Terrorize him, you know? Well, I mean, I think if somebody climbed on my lap after death and spit in my eye, I would probably haunt them for the rest of their lives, too. Hashtag goals. Uh, anyway, a woman named Sarah Masia, who was the curator of the Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow Historical Society as of 2000 when this article was written, uh, said that she has heard about the crying and that people have told her that she weeps because of some tragedy in her life. And of course, you can find scientific explanations for the cheers, uh, sculpture interacting with the environment and all that. But what the, what Sarah used to hear is that when you're nice to the statue, she'll take care of you. Uh, her memories include trips up to the site at night with her friend who lived across the road from the cemetery. And she said that they never really stayed too long on Halloween. The sculpture sits between two pines in the north central section of the fabled graveyard, which is also the burying place, as of Washington Irving, of Andrew Carnegie, Elizabeth Arden, Thomas J. Watson, and many members of the Rockefeller family. I actually hope to be going to the Rockefeller estate tomorrow, so I'll be posting some pictures on social media there. Uh, a shroud covers her, and she has a Greco-Roman tunic, uh, so I'm actually going to go look for this tomorrow now that I've found all of this information today. Um, we didn't have much time in the cemetery, but I do plan on going back and grabbing a picture for you all tomorrow. Um, and so the statue was actually done by Andrew O'Connor Jr., who was a sculptor, and it was commissioned by General Thomas's widow shortly after his death in January 14, 1903. It's called the Reculman, or Grief, and was intended as a memorial figure to be placed in front of the general's tomb. So, uh, that is one haunting I have heard of, and there are several more, because, of course, Sleepy Hollow itself is steeped in history. We know about the capture of Major John Andre. There are Revolutionary War soldiers that were leaving from Terrytown to go serve in the war, um, and they assisted in every effort of the war. There were residents who worked in factories, factories, supported bond drives, participated in civil defense organizations, and of course sent their sons and daughters to war in the name of democracy and freedom. There is a Revolutionary War monument uh, on Battle Hill in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. 
and it was dedicated October 19, 1894, and lists 92 soldiers' names. The inscription on it reads, In memory of the officers and soldiers of the Revolution, who by their valor sustained the cause of liberty and independence on these historic fields, 1776 to 1783. And so, of course, uh, there are also Civil War soldiers buried in the cemetery, and I did see a monument to the Union soldiers there today. And the Grand Army of the Republic was organized here post 496 on July 1st, 1884, which is after the revolution. Um, but there are several soldiers there and there was a monument erected to the Union soldiers in the cemetery as well. There were even soldiers who served in World War One, World War Two. So those people are all buried there. Um, there. So Sleepy Hollow definitely has a history as a working class town of seeing a lot of death, um, seeing, you know, people that were fleeing the yellow fever epidemic in New York, um, and seeing, you know, the town change around it, but also being privy to a lot of superstitions in and of itself. So of course, a place like this, you're definitely going to get haunting. So one of the famous, most famous stories ever written actually rings true to the culture of this town. And so in calling this episode, Heading home to the Horseman's Hollow, of course, Washington Irving himself has said to be a frequent specter seen here. Uh, there are many people who work at Sunnyside, which is the cottage that he purchased, uh, who was that was actually owned by the Van Tassels. Uh, so Sunnyside was purchased by Irving um, in 1835 when he was 52, and so this house was actually built in. 1656 by Wolfert Acker, and the old Dutch farmhouse known as Wolfert's Roost was owned by the Van Tassel family in the late 18th century. So it's possible that Sunnyside and many other buildings in the area were actually the inspiration uh, for the Van Tassel homestead uh, in Sleepy Hollow. But at Sunnyside, many people report that a window uh, in the bedroom that faces the Hudson River and in the study, which is on the east side of the, the cottage, Washington Irving has been seen many times. And how do we know what Washington Irving looks like? Well, because we have a daguerreotype of Washington Irving in his later years. Um, of course, his fiancée, Matilda Hoffman, is also said to be seen by a trove of trees from which she watches Irving's cottage. She died there on April 26, 1809, at the age of 17, from complications from a cold that led to consumption. Uh, his nieces are also said to tidy the house, uh, and they were the daughters of his elder of Irving's elder brother Ebenezer. And there is also a young woman apparently suffering from a lost love, who wandered through the orchard, ate too many green apples, died, and stayed as a ghost, according to Washington Irving III, the great great grand nephew of Washington Irving. I'm gonna go ahead and call BS on that one because nobody. I mean, how you die from eating too much apples? Let's let's be serious here, people. Um, so Washington Irving's famous character, the Headless Horseman, has also been seen, uh, and apparently returns to the the site of the scene of battle. So that's a very famous ghost. And there are some people in town that try and scare tourists by saying, "Oh no, it was a real thing. He based it off of a real story of this Hessian soldier, and you can actually see him." And of course, I've not seen any headless horsemen today. It's around midnight right now on All Hallows Eve, so we are now getting into All Souls Day, and I have not seen a headless horseman, sadly. 
Um, but there are many, many, many other ghost sightings here in Sleepy Hollow. Um, and I could go on and on and on because in doing some research about this town and just sort of talking to people, uh, there are people that just have a story about almost every home here because it is a place where you've seen so much history. I mean, not even the revolutionary history. There were working people here in the 19th century that... Uh, some worker movements and things that happened in Terrytown. I mean, there are, you know, all sorts of things around the area that have happened. Possibly, you know, Native American clashes that happened in the 17th century. So, uh, like any place, you know, Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow are absolutely steeped in haunting and spirits. And actually, a British ghost investigator named Jean, Dean James Maynard visited Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow in the summer of 2005 and called the area the most haunted place in the world. And I'm sure there are many, many, many other places that are much more haunted than Terrytown, New York. Um, but for that British gentleman, it seemed to be one of the most haunted places in the world. And it would seem that Washington Irving himself also thought so. And we know that at the end of the tale, the legend of Sleepy Hollow, at that moment when Ichabod Crane faces his horror and sees the Headless Horseman, I'll just read the ending passage of that um, when he finally has that final moment. And it reads as such, As yet the panic of the steed had given his unskillful rider an apparent advantage in the chase. But just as he had got halfway through the hollow, the girths of the saddle gave way, and he felt it slipping from under him. He seized it by the pommel and endeavored to hold it firm, but in vain, and had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder round the neck, when the saddle fell to the earth and he heard it trampled underfoot by his pursuer. For a moment, the terror of Hans von Ripper's wrath paced, passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle. But this was no time for petty fears. The goblin was hard on his haunches, and, unskilled rider that he was, he had much to do to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, sometimes on another, and sometimes jolted on the high ridge of his horse's backbone with a violence that he verily feared would cleave him asunder. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand. The wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the brook told him that he was not mistaken. He saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond. He recollected the place where Brom Bones' ghostly competitor had disappeared. If I can but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe. Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him. He even fancied that he felt his hot breath. Another convulsive kick in the ribs and old gunpowder sprang upon the bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks. He gained the opposite side, and now Ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuers should vanish, according to the rule, in a flash of fire and brimstone. Just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and in the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavored to dodge this horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and Gunpowder, the Black Steed, and the Goblin Rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning, the old horse was found, without his saddle and with a bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. Hans van Ripper now began to feel some uneasiness at the fate of the poor Ichabod in his saddle. An inquiry was set on foot, and after diligent investigation, they came upon his traces. In one part of the road leading to the church was found the saddle trampled in the dirt, the tracks of horses' hooves deeply dented in the road, 
and evidently at furious speed, were traced back to the bridge, beyond which the bank of a broad part of the brook, where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. Hans van Ripper, as executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all his worldly effects. They consisted of two shirts and a half, two stocks for the neck, a pair of two worsted stockings, an old pair of corduroy small clothes, a rusty razor, a book of psalm tunes full of dog's ears, and a broken pitch pipe. As the, to the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community, excepting Cotton Mather's History of Witchcraft, a New England almanac, and a book of dreams and fortune-telling, in which last was a sheet of fool's cap, much scribbled and blotted in several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honor of the heiress of Van Tassel. These magic books and the poetic scrawl were forthwith consigned to the flames by Hans von Ripper, who from that time forward determined to send his children no more to school, observing that he never knew any good to come of this same reading and writing. Whatever money the schoolmaster possessed, and he had received his quarter's pay but a day or two before, he must have had about his person at the time of his disappearance. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard, at the bridge, and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. The stories of Brower of Bones and of a whole budget of others were called to mind, and when they had diligently considered them all and compared them with the symptoms of the present case, they shook their heads and came upon the conclusion that Echabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. As he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt, nobody troubled his head any more about him. The school was removed to a different quarter of the hollow, and another pedagogue reigned in his stead. It is true, an old farmer who had come down to New York on a visit several years after, and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was received, brought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive, and that he had left the neighborhood partly in fear of the goblin and Hans van Ripper, and partly in mortification at having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress, that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, and had kept school and studied law at the same time, and had been admitted to the bar, turned politician, electioneer, had written for the newspapers, and finally had been made a justice at the ten-pound court. Brom Bones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance conducted the blooming Katrina in triumph to the altar, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. And with that, I thank you all for listening to my Halloween escapades in the town of Sleepy Hollow, listening about Washington Irving and the meaning of Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman to many people today, and joining me in sharing with you some notes from a legend. Happy Halloween, and thank you for listening. <laughs>